Welcome to Reimagining's podcast by Belong. In this podcast, we revisit conventional themes and view them through different and unusual lenses. In every episode, we speak to authors and experts who have approached a conventional topic in unique ways and upended normal understandings of topics such as love, history, citizenship, mythology, and many more. Urging all of us to question the given and see the world through an intersectional lens. Each episode will cover the journey of these authors and writers. We will break down concepts, introduce new ones and explore the evolution in their thinking. The intent of this podcast series is to provoke people to rethink everyday concepts and realize the importance of multiple narratives and perspectives. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Reimagining series, Reimagining the scope of the Indian Constitution. We have with us Arun Thiruvangadam who is currently a professor of law at the National Law School Bangalore. He is the author of the Constitution of India Contextual Analysis. Our next guest for the episode is Arvind Narayan, who is founding member of the Alternate Law Forum. He was part of the litigation team which argued the constitutionality of Section 377 before the High Court and the Supreme Court. He is the author of Queer, Despite Sexuality, Law and Social Change. Another guest is Akash Singh Rathor, who is a philosopher of international repute. author of eight books including ambedkar's preamble a secret history of the constitution of india and has written for numerous international and national journals stay tuned as we speak to these three guests who have approached the indian constitution in different ways in their writings and have discovered various truths to it in the first segment they discuss the drafting process of the constitution and then the three exchange their views on the demerits and merits of the document Then we discuss the scope of the constitution in accommodating evolution of different identities, the state of the constitutional principles in today's world, and the changing idea of India. We end this episode with some recommendations to listeners who would like to understand the Indian constitution, especially for those who aren't from the legal background. We will begin this episode now with a question that helps contextualize today's topic of discussion. The Indian constitution is a remarkable document. that has shaped the country in ways that cannot be overstated however it is also a chimerical document that ends up being different things to different people with only a very few aware of the process of drafting the constitution would you all like to introduce our listeners to the historical process of the drafting of the indian constitution and elaborate on the principles and values that were kept in mind while building this new nation Akash you have written extensively on Dr B R Ambedkar's legacy would you like to go first in answering this question and then Arun and Arvind can follow with up with their points sure i'd be happy to go first thank you very much yoshita for this opportunity i'm i'm very proud and happy to be here with all of you arvind i've been a fan of for for many years as he knows and arun's book i had the pleasure of reading about 2 years back and have been following him since then so i'm i'm really honored to be with such uh, distinguished speakers as for the way that you you know there are a couple of words that pop out when you were introducing the question one was the idea of the constitution as chimerical every time i hear that i feel a bit saddened by it and i've been trying to understand why and i think i finally did understand what it is about the question that pricks me slightly and it's it's this indeed very few people are aware about the way that our constitution came into being and also the document means different things to different people but what has just occurred to me is why shouldn't it mean different things to different people after all if we're talking about for example representatives of government then it's in some respects a, a document of limitation de- determining what rights cannot be infringed upon what powers cannot be exceeded and things like that but for a common citizen we see it far less as a document of limitation and more a document articulating rights and freedoms and if you go a bit farther out into this community to the marginalized sections it's even a document of emancipation especially articles like 14 15 16 17 18 how 21 has turned out to be used these are tools uh, sort of emancipatory tools which we certainly wouldn't say about representatives of government so indeed the constitution does mean different things to different people but i would like to see it in a different light which is to say that this is 
this could be described as one of its qualities and not merely something that shines a negative light on. As for the process of drafting, well, I'm hardly an expert on anything other than the the preamble, which is the least chimerical <laughs> aspect of the of the Constitution, I would argue. But one thing that you say really hits home, and now I don't want to get hauled up for contempt of court, but among the citizens of India that are unaware of its drafting, we have to include much of the judiciary. And as I've remarked, maybe flippantly in my book on the preamble, even the UPSC examination requires that each of our public servants learns wrong information about the process of drafting the constitution. That is, they learn mandatorily multiple choice question on the exam that the preamble was drafted by Nehru since it is based allegedly on the objectives resolution that was that was primarily drafted by him. I mean, it was co-authored by several members, but it was primarily authored by Now, this I attempted to show in the, my book is, is not at all true. It was inspired by the objectives resolution, but it took quite significant departure from it. In fact, so much departure that even a footnote was appended to the original preamble, making the, you know, a claim that to cite Hamlet that, you know, did protest too much. There was a footnote appended claiming that the preamble did indeed follow the objectives resolution. Well, the only need for such a footnote was because they didn't follow the objectives resolution. So the process of drafting the preamble is a much simpler story in some respects than the constitution as a whole. But the part that I would point out since you kindled it is that it was that the preamble was drafted by a very, very small group of people, really towards the end of it, only two of the members of the drafting committee were there for each of the sessions where it was uh, written out and finalized. And of course, the genius behind it, which is quite visible in the fraternity clause, especially assuring the dignity of the individual and the unity of the nation prior to the 42nd Amendment, where we add integrity. Well, the original formulation of that was assuring the dignity of the individual, irrespective of caste. And so we can see this formulation gives us a very clear hint about the person who was primarily behind it, Dr. Ambedkar, and the reasons that he wanted to draft a, a sort of vision for the constitution that was more substantive than the objectives resolution, which was very procedural in some respect. So what we get is, once again, I'm speaking only of the process of drafting the preamble as opposed to the constitution. What we get is a vision document that sets a stage for a very new conception of what an independent India would be. And it's a conception that I think we'll talk about more as the hour progresses. Let me just pick up from what Akash just said. And you've asked us this question of how is the constitution drafted? There is quite a bit of material available which explains how the Indian constitution was drafted between 1946 to 1949, so nearly a three-year process. But I think what Akash has just said shows us that although there is information out there, the kind of work that, for instance, Akash has done to understand how do we have the preamble that we do and how do particular phrases come in, that kind of work is perhaps needed for every part of the constitution. It's interesting, and we'll probably talk about some work which has started emerging in recent years. Right? So we are more than 70 years now since independence and since that drafting process happened. But even now, there are large parts of that puzzle which are not familiar to, not just, I wouldn't say just regular people, but also people who work on the constitution and its various sort of components. Right? So we, we have the world's longest constitution. And although there are materials that researchers can plumb to understand its depths. I think Akash's book also shows us that you can't just look at the constituent assembly debates or these other which are out in the public domain. Sometimes you would also have to access private papers and other things to, to try and find out. So, so what Akash has done is to try and find out the origins of fraternity. You would have to go through drafts that were circulated in the assembly, in the various committees which worked in the assembly to be able to discern it in that way. Right? So as you said, there isn't that much awareness about the making of this remarkable constitution, but that's not just a fault of ordinary people. It's also the fact that you know many researchers have fairly recently come to study. 
there is a long established body of work which has tried to study that but i think as akash has said there's also a lot of other contending theories about i think partly goes to the fact that we all have uh, such contrasting impressions of the constitution and in some ways i would think it's perhaps not a failing it could be a virtue that many of us and, and some people have commented on the fact that india is such a diverse country but so many diverse groups can point to parts of the constitution and draw force for their particular ideologies and causes right so as we talk about the nature of the constitution and i'm sure as our conversation goes forward we will find that people on the extreme left people on the extreme right have also historically mobilized parts of the constitution in support of whatever issue that they were campaigning for and as akash said that need not be a drawback right in, in some ways what is remarkable about the indian constitution which outsiders have observed is that so many of contestations and disputes go on about the interpretation of the constitution and some of these are very bitter contestations but my own sense is where, you know when you look at other societies i i lived in singapore for about 10 years and a lot of those debates which are normal in any polity in singapore don't happen within the framework of their constitution they have these debates based on things which are outside the constitution they have it on some understanding of what kind of society singapore is what has been its political history what is the culture of the singaporean people and those debates continue but very often with no reference to the constitution right? some singapore scholars have sort of commented that the constitution has become a mere governance which people within government rely on but it doesn't have the larger connection with the populace let's say the american constitution or the indian constitution and i think i'm i'm very struck by that sure thanks and i think it's nice that we have people from actually different disciplines so akash it's a strength that you're not from the from the legal discipline in in a narrow sense because i think what yoshita seems to be indicating is not too many people are aware of the constitution or the drafting process of the constitution and maybe that's part of the reason is because we're looking at it as, as lawyers do as a legal document and the textual origins of the constitution and in fact your work and arun's work both works take a very different track i think they both try and arun expressly and overtly says the constitutions in context and your work as well looks at the idea of what allows for this remarkable document to really emerge and there i'd i'd kind of agree with you i don't think it's a chimerical document at all i think it's quite clear in terms of what the vision the preamble is setting out it's very very clear the vision of you either you look at the idea of liberty of thought expression belief faith and worship the idea of equality status and of opportunity and as you indicated the idea of, of dignity of the individual and the idea of fraternity so there's no lack of clarity in terms of the the broad vision which the preamble is putting out as something which we as a nation or we as a people and i think the point I, i'll just make is this is that if you say what is the origin point of the constitution i'd say that let's look at it as originating in a, in a certain process of struggle and again here i go back to one of our favorite thinkers balgopal who is a very important rights activist in the indian context and he made the point that without struggle rights do not accrue another great great practitioner of the law he made the point he said the again the indian constitution is really the product of a struggle and the struggle he pointed out to this is the freedom struggle he says in a sense if you're talking about the importance of the idea of equality that equality really comes from the idea that the british said indians and dogs are the same level so when you are fighting that mindset then you have to instill in place or put in place the idea of equality or the british put forth the idea that the dignity of the indian person stands humiliated so then of course you the dignity becomes a foregrounding or central concept which the constitution puts in place and that's really the struggle against an external domination or a colonial domination or a racial domination and that's one dimension of the constitution but akash's work is very very important because what it's pointing out too is that as importantly there's an internal dimension to the struggle and that struggle is a struggle of against caste oppression and gender oppression in the indian context and again and going back to akash's uh, book i think the two important points which it makes is already highlighted is that when you look at the internal dimension of struggle and the question of caste in particular he says the contribution of dr ambedkar is really two very important concepts one of course is the idea of fraternity why is the idea of fraternity important again in the constant assembly debates bitko makes it very clear 
He says liberty and equality without fraternity is no deeper than a coat of paint. So the point simply is this: if you don't have fraternity, then you will have the supremacy of the few, or you'll have the oppression which is perpetrated under the on the grounds of liberty. You won't have the sense of a for society or a community moving forward in almost equal terms. That will not happen. The second concept, which is very important, which Ambedkar introduces again, is the is the idea of dignity. And Akash made this reference when he said that what the Constitution says. is fraternity assuring the dignity of the individual and the unity of the nation so the, the dignity of the individual comes before the unity of the nation and the reason that is so and this is akash's point in terms of quoting ambedkar is that you can't safeguard the unity of the nation unless you ensure the dignity of the individual safeguard so again that's a very very important contribution where you place at the center fold the idea of dignity of the individual and you say that you know this unity of the nation can't be safeguarded or protected unless you ensure that the dignity of the individual is protected all your points made a lot of sense and it also made me think about how i come from a non legal background and i've always thought of the constitution like i've always had friends and family members who have been studying along and i've always thought of the constitution as a very intimidating document so all your writings and their interpretations and stuff like that because values such as liberty fraternity they are not really out of the daily life so i think all your writings and interpretations really help realize i think the inherent connection of these really important values in the constitution and you know daily life so all of you have written about the constitution although from different perspectives arun your book the constitution of india contextual analysis deals with specific aspects of the indian constitutional tradition as it has evolved across seven decades since independence Arvind, in your writings, you view the law through the lens of sexuality, and Akash, rethinking India as a series traces the evolution of the image of India as was aspirationally reflected in the Constitution. In your scholarship, what did you all find as admirable aspects of this document? And on the other hand, would you like to comment on some drawbacks of the Indian constitutional system? Okay, asking a question: What do you find admirable about it? I think it's a good place to start by how at times the document can motivate people at a grassroots level so if i understand when you say that the constitution would seem intimidating of course it is and the more legal commentary that's piled on the more intimidating it becomes but at the same time we've all watched over the last 3 years or so people walking around protesting marching with placards with the words of the preamble or other text from the from the constitution and this is one of the the most inspirational aspects of the constitution that it it still has this ability to motivate people at a very fundamental level and i think the reason behind it is probably what arvind had mentioned in his previous comment it was born out of struggle and as he also mentioned you know all of our rights were essentially born out of a uh, struggle each one has had to be wrestled from the authoritarian tendencies or the regressive or orthodox tendencies of the state and government and when we wrestle these orthodox or authoritarian tendencies for rights it's admirable that we have there that we can point to and say there's nothing anarchical about our protest there's nothing antinational about our protest what we are protesting for these rights that we are aiming struggling to wrest from the the state or the government are all there if not in written word at least in the spirit of the constitution in some article or other so this is the way that it's aspirational in inspirational is i think what i find quite admirable about it one place where we see this concretely as you mentioned Yoshitan opening is in Arvind's own legal i don't want to say legal practice as that in quotation legal practice but in his own let's say legal struggle here we have sort of first hand concrete account of how the document can function as a springboard reflective board for motivating people at a grassroots level motivating people all of the way up the hierarchies up to the state and force a uh, change to be realized so that the constitution still has all of this power from the bottom to the top 
is something that I find quite admirable about. One way of thinking about it is that the constitution and the, uh, and the preamble happen to be legal documents in the sense that they have that power which words have, which is being open-ended. That is, it can mean something in one generation, could mean something else, completely something else in another generation. And each generation can potentially find its own understanding of freedom in the words of the constitution, the words of the preamble. We're talking about the preamble at this moment. I have to quote this. I don't know, of course, we'll have a bit of an objection, but I'll quote him nonetheless. Justice Kennedy, who in the decriminalization of same-sex relationships in the U.S. context, he makes this point. He says, as the constitution endures, persons in every generation can invoke its principles in their own search for greater freedom. I think that's a beautiful point because it captures, in a sense, the potential the constitution has. And going back to the concept which we referenced from the, from the beginning of this, of this discussion, which Akash brought up right in the very beginning, which is the concept of dignity. Dignity, Akash's strong contention, which I completely agree with, is the contribution of Dr. Ambedkar. And I think the idea of dignity is we don't quite know exactly what it means. We can think of it as the other humiliation. We can think of it as something which, which contributes to a sense of, of being human. But then in a concrete sense, what would that mean? And if you go to the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, the first articulation, I wouldn't say the first articulation, one articulation of dignity is in the context of prisoner's rights, saying if you're subjected to solitary confinement, that violates your right to dignity, because to be human is to be part of human society, is to have this form of association with other people, is to talk to other people. And when you curtail that in a complete sense, you're violating the right to dignity. What the Supreme Court held is that... uh, in a prison, you are deprived of the right to movement, but you cannot be deprived of the right to dignity. And dignity includes your right to associate with other prisoners. right? And so that's one dimension of dignity which the Supreme Court pointed out to in the 80s. Then you're going to, for example, in 2000, when we have the Navdej judgment, they read dignity as a part of your right to make decisions about your intimate life. There is a law which criminalizes your right to make decisions about your intimate life, about who you choose to be with. Then that would be a violation of right to dignity. This is fundamental to who you are. It's an issue of uh, making choices about personal life. Be it your choose, I mean, if you take it from the from a broader principle, be it your right to marry the person of your choice, be it your right to be in a relationship with the person of one's choice, or be it your right to have intimate relationships with another person. All of this comes within your right to dignity. So just giving an example of two ways in which the concept of dignity is taken forward. We can apply the same logic to the idea of equality. We can apply the same logic to the question of liberty. We can apply the same logic to the freedom of conscience to each of these concepts. So you'll get a sense of a, almost a rich tapestry of social justice struggle in the Indian context and how each of these concepts has been given life to by different different struggles, different, different moments in time. You talk about within the context of anti-terror laws and the way people spend years, not decades in jail. Then you'll argue that the promise of the constitution has not been fulfilled, right? The range of ways in which the people will argue that the preamble sounds absolutely wonderful, but at the ground level, those rights people have not really have not really got. So there's a there's a gap between promise and, and performance. So that could be that could be the dimension of the, of the critique of the preamble of the constitution. I just want to build upon things that Akash and Arvind have mentioned. So first on the points about the constitution that, you know, looking back after 70 years, what is remarkable. I think both Arvind and Akash have talked about broad principles, but the constitution is, of course, a document of institutions. Right? It sets out the institutions that will govern India. And when you look at it from this vantage point of the early 21st century, what is quite remarkable about this document made in the middle of the 20th century is how the framers thought very carefully about institutions, right? You look at how they conceived of an independent election commission and also came upon many innovations, which existing constitutions had not done. So that's quite a remarkable part of the constitution. Many of the details are very, very minute technical aspects of these institutions. And I think that framing generation wanted to consolidate the independence that had been won and had been won after great struggle, as as Arvind and Akash have spoken about. So I think that's one of the things 
that still stands out about the constitution and many people around the world who were inspired by the indian constitution looked to all those parts to think about how they would try and you know emulate it in their own constitution so there's a there's a comparative element which i think people within india are not always aware of but people in other countries which were emerging from imperialism and colonialism in the mid 20th century really looked to india and found inspiration so it's a document of inspiration not just for people within india but it was a document which was studied by people around and i think that's that's an important point to emphasize some things which are quite puzzling when you look at it now is one why did the framers not think about political parties right now around the time that the constitution was made there were other documents also being drafted so you know so the basic law of germany was also adopted in 1949 and the germans were also reacting to their own history so one of the things that they learned from the weimar experience is that political parties can be deeply anti constitutional institutions so the 1949 constitution of germany tries to set out you know measures to regulate political parties in india perhaps because of our circumstances perhaps because of the dominance of the indian national congress and there was a sense perhaps that the congress would be also the the vehicle for many of the programs that the constitution envisaged and and perhaps because of that they were too confident that the origins of the congress party in the freedom movement and its own values would never pose a risk to constitutional values right and if you look at the contemporary period many scholars have sort of written about how the fact that the indian constitution does not regulate political parties the only presence is in the 10th schedule where there's an anti defection provision but political parties are not regulated by the express constitution and in recent years efforts by say the election commission to regulate political parties have not been very successful partly because of this absence in the constitution right so when you think about political actors and constitutional actors today in the contemporary world it's obvious that political parties are a very significant actor and the indian constitution's failure to provide for their regulation looking back seems like a fairly major problem right and i was thinking about how akash you mentioned about like the admirable and inspirational thought behind constitution and the relationship of it with grassroots level resistance and that's so so true because all those values of equality liberty that you see in protests coming up but those are also the values that are instilled in the constitution and and on the flip side it's it's also used by to curtail a lot of freedoms so that really brings me to the next question really close in well with the next question about how law or the first thing we learn about law or the legal system or the constitution is about how law is equal and impartial so what are your individual takes on the representation of diversity in the indian constitution and does the current definition as arun pointed out some aspects of it does the current definition of citizenship ensure the interests of all identities and what do you see as the future of indian citizenship <laughs> you had a question about citizenship so there's a history to this and people have also commented on why the frame had not made citizenship for instance a fundamental right right so in our constitution the part on citizenship is part 2 of the constitution which precedes part 3 which is the fundamental rights chapter and as the ca protests have reminded us this is partly a fact a result of the fact that citizenship is not a fundamental right in india right that the ca was passed as a statute because the constitution in part 2 basically says that questions relating to citizenship will be regulated by parliament and there doesn't seem to be that much guidance provided by the constitution on how citizenship rights can be altered now as i said there could well be historical reasons for it but that results in a situation where citizenship rights which arguably are amongst the most important in a constitutional democracy are less secure than some of the other fundamental rights right i don't already began with the historical context there and as all of us know as everybody knows citizenship has been quite complex as a polite way of saying it so throughout the decades primarily due to partition we had such a convoluted 
admixtures of the way that citizenship was granted, or let's say that we've had a mixture of territorial conception and a conception of by descent, one that was rather patriarchal for some time and then corrected and so on. So the evolution of of citizenship in India has been extremely complicated. And when you and now to get to the more substantive part, when you keep in mind, I didn't mention that the constitution creates and regulates institutions, and this is one of its fundamental functions. But the institutions that we have that administer the constitution are by and large only formally competent to do so. And substantively, I think, demonstrate a consistent incompetence in this regard. And just the Citizenship Act is an example. It's internally inconsistent. It's inconsistent with the rules that are then formulated to elaborate on the act. It's inconsistent with the Passport Act. And it is inconsistent with the passport rules that are elaborated out of the act. And these four documents or instruments then become a subject for the whims of whichever institution happens to be claiming to implement the law. So what you'll find And of course, the courts haven't helped in this respect. In all cases, having a foreign passport is definitive proof of a foreign citizenship, but having an Indian passport is not definitive proof of Indian citizenship. So we have these bizarre inconsistencies. So now let's talk about the administration of of the rules. So the, the rules, any of us who have dealt with the government, and I'm sure all of us have filing RTIs and so on, knows intimately that the rules are so you have the act and then you have the the rules that elaborate on it and then you have circulars that elaborate or attempt to clarify the rules and then you have in every bureaucrat's desk or bookshelf kind of swami's summaries of these acts rules and circulars and judicial dis- the pronouncements and when you put them all together quite frankly very few people know what the hell is going on and one thing that is consistent and I think each of us would have experience of this, is that when it comes down to the level of administration, so alleged implementation of the policy, you get the most rigid interpretation of the rules. I have scarcely come upon an Indian citizen, whether a lawyer, judge, or otherwise, who is aware of the fact that dual citizenship is allowed for minors in certain cases in in India. When a case arose where I had firsthand experience of this, the relevant authorities were not even aware of the circulars issued by Home Ministry meant to clarify rules related to the passport and the citizenship rules. So the Home Ministry is unaware of what is present in the rules that are meant to elaborate the Acts of Parliament, and then the individuals who have to administer or execute these rules are unaware of what it is that they are executing. And when you take them to a court in order to adjudicate the matter, the judiciary is also unaware of these rules. So what we find is from the very beginning, citizenship in India has been profoundly complicated. The efforts to make it more systematic over time, as we all know, have been complicated by various you know, xenophobia and problems with different religious communities of living in neighboring countries and things like this. But at the same time, even if these acts should become perfectly clear and consistent, it doesn't correct the fact that they are inconsistent with other related acts, all of the rules, and that we have bureaucracy and judiciary that are themselves unaware of many of these of these rules themselves. So the problem goes all the way from the top down to the local magistrate to the local administrator. And I, I don't see any scope for correcting this merely at the level of a parliamentary act. Okay, so I hope I didn't say anything that I'm not allowed to say. But in this case, it's bizarre that our own mm. uh, administrators don't know the laws. When you send them, for example, a passage from from the act, you get in return mm. a photocopy from Swami's guidebook to what, oh, <laughs> what the act, act supposedly means. And of course, mm. it's completely, it makes no sense at all. Of course, yeah. I think what both Akash and have communicated 
is the is the fact that the citizenship law can be a fairly complicated process arun indicated that you know in in many ways the question of citizenship was deferred in the constituent assembly where the power was given to parliament to legislate a citizenship law and akash has indicated how the citizenship law when it came in has many ambiguities within it and many difficulties within it. but i think to me what is what is really what would be interesting is when the citizenship amendment act was passed there was almost a spontaneous eruption protest across the read the citizenship amendment act it's a fairly technical point which is saying that you know illegal migrants who come from certain religions who come from who are muslim christian sikh jain parsi excluding muslims will be entitled to citizenship that's what it indicates but people seem to very spontaneously get the fact that this hit at something very fundamental as far as the constitution is concerned as we discussed if people were protesting having the iconography of the preamble having the iconography of ambedkar having the iconography of gandhi against the citizenship amendment act they were very clear that the law in a fundamental sense hit at the core root values of the constitution so we take in takes you back to the fact that in a sense though we think the constitution is a legal and a technical document not easily understood people have spontaneously got the spirit of the constitution understood what it actually means and that i thought was a really amazing or really fantastic kind of a point and again it goes back to something which nehru said in a, in a different context but he said it when the first amendment was being debated but the way he put it he said this magnificent constitution that the frame was kidnapped and polluted by lawyers so the point being that the constitution is a document not meant to be in the custody of, of lawyers but meant to be uh, owned by we the people so the fact that the caa protest happened indicate that people have a spontaneous political sense of what the preamble and the constitution really stands for and they have spontaneous sense that equality is a part of it they have an understanding that discrimination on grounds of religion is something which the constitution prohibits and so the, i think the if you ask the question of, of what are the gaps in the constitution which is the question we started with clearly it's the fact that the the question of citizenship was deferred to future date as arun very strongly and very clearly indicated but at the same time the question to ask would be would the constitution itself provide ways of of contouring or of understanding this power which parliament has and can that power be exercised in a way which is outside the framework of the preamble and preamble which sets in place these fundamental norms as it were that being said i think going back to akash point all this is great all this is fantastic that's true that the constitution in the sense even if it's article 11 it determines how the power in article 11 is to be is to be exercised because it cannot be in violation and derogation of the other fundamental rights it cannot be in derogation of article 15 it cannot be in derogation of of the preamble of promise of equality as it were that being said the problem we face of course are institutions all this is great all this is fantastic but why has this issue not been decided or adjudicated by the supreme court and that's a question which we still left without an answer if there's a petition which has been filed not just a petition the 140 petitions filed in the supreme court challenging this law the protests around the country as far as this law is concerned is obviously it mattered deeply as far as the section of the population is concerned it mattered if you if concerned if you were aware that your responsibility was to be the custodian of the constitution it should have mattered but yet the supreme court has deferred and not decided this particular matter so the, the fact that the institutions have not lived up to the promise vested in them have not lived, lived up to the role which they had is part of the problem with that we that we face today but again if you're saying that the promise of the constitution has been understood by people who internalized it people have got in some sense not fully in some sense an idea of the constitutional morality which should be there then i think the hopefully western how will popular protest of people's protest be able to safeguard or take forward the promise of the, of the constitution in spite of the fact that the institutions are not delivered as much as we would like them to i think really great points raised about the promise of constitution and for sure if, like i was saying earlier as a the protests are what a great way of seeing how the values of the constitution and that were framed in the beginning are still pretty alive and <laughs> taken in account by the people and of course it has both sides it's also kind of heartbreaking why the protests are happening and all that followed after the protests but still it's good to see the spirit i was thinking also about how constitution is 
although the promise or the spirit of constitution is still alive it's still a document of as we were discussing of a particular time and i was wondering about the scope of the constitution in accommodating evolution of different identities for example the identity of like in the queer community cannot be boxed into a clear category and the spectrum is also evolving and expanding every day and in the courtrooms even today a major debate happening is the same sex marriage law which is is which is disputed even in the community because many believe that it just applicates casteist heteronormative and patriarchal roots so how does the constitutional system of governance ensures the evolution of identities while thinking of laws in the modern age and also safeguard the interests of every community taking especially intersectionality in account obviously the constitution can't you know count for the all the nuances and the diversities as far as the queer community is concerned that going back to ambedkar ambedkar is a very interesting point where he talked about the draft penal code and he said that the his support for the draft penal code of 1860 was the fact that it used the word person if you use the word person then you ensure that at the normative level there's no discrimination against people which is embedded in the law itself so in one one way of answering your question is uh, we don't need to get into the question of the diversity of the queer community in what extent is, is reflected in the constitution as long as the constitution guarantees rights to all persons since queer people are persons with whatever diversity queer people have they come within the framework of the constitution so there's no there's that question need not arise that's one way of answering that question the second of course is that uh, we have to of course expand and modulate certain terms on which in the constitution which is which has happened for example the discrimination on the sex today is is red after nal after navtej uh, after navtej nalsa and then the nalsa decision to include discrimination on the sexual orientation and gender identity so that there's a certain broadening which has already happened but of course the question you would of course come back to is if you take the international law dimension the yogikata principles plus 10 talks about non discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation gender identity gender expression sex characteristics obviously that framework is not there within within the indian constitution so again that's where the question of struggle comes in and that's where the question of i mean how do you work with the law comes in because so far what struggle is, has shown or what the queer struggle has shown is that you able to take forward the understanding of the discrimination that you face within the language of the constitution that is in this case article 15 and in this, this case article article 21 so if you're talking about sex characteristics and gender expression again those are two new terms which are come at the level of international law can that be accommodated within the framework of the indian constitution is the question and i think the answer is as far as gender expression is concerned yes because we look at nalsa nalsa is even prior to the yogikata principles plus 10 in 2017 because nalsa says the right to freedom of speech and expression expression includes the right to wear to dress in the manner of one's choice right comes within the idea of expression so gender expression comes within the issue of expression itself so i think it's a question of how the question of the constitution and the question of struggle comes together and as we were discussing in the earlier point in time how do you find an inhabitation within the language of dignity the language of equality and the language of expression i'll just add again when you go back to the constitution as we've been discussing it has these broad principles and then it has a tremendous amount of of detail right i just want to go back to something that akash had mentioned earlier in response to the previous question the fact that the indian constitution is so long and so technical was a point that was raised in the constituent assembly as well and you know when you read the constituent assembly debates you see that a lot of people sometimes seem to attack dr ambedkar personally right and when you read that today with the benefit of all that we know you can see that there's something a little bit more to it right and a lot of things you you have to glean from the surrounding context but dr ambedkar actually responded to that and he said this constitution is very detailed partly because i think he knew that the overall legal system that we had even by the middle of the 20th century all the things that akash mentioned right and strong bureaucracy and a tendency to regulate everything even very big questions of principle from a very technical 
Babu mindset, right? What is the applicable regulation? What is the applicable guideline for this? Instead of trying to address it in terms of the broad principles of the constitution. And I think that's partly why the constitution is that detailed, because Dr. Ambedkar himself and many people in the assembly also felt that you need to try and resolve as much as possible through this process, which lasted over three years, and through this one, right, which will try and clarify as much as possible. Now, looking back, you can say that that seems like not an entirely successful experiment. You can't once and for all try and you know resolve everything in one single document. But they did try and anticipate the kind of question that you're asking, right? So I think it's safe to say, I mean, I'm sure there were queer people in the assembly, but given the times, they could not have openly talked about these issues. And I think we have no evidence that the issue of queer people or many other questions that have come up more recently were in the minds of the framers. But if you look at the amending provision, Article 368, what is quite striking about it is that they made the constitution a very flexible constitution. And so there is this idea of a living constitution, the idea that although the constitution is created at a particular point of time, it should be flexible enough to accommodate change as you go along. And in the case of the Indian constitution, as with many other constitutions, there are many actors who can respond to societal change and then try and change the constitution accordingly. Right? So you have parliament where the elected government of the day can initiate such change. And as a matter of fact, that's what has happened, right? Our constitution has been amended more than 100 times over the seven decades of existence. And quite often it is because the government of the day pushes a change to bring the constitution in line with some policy that it wants to enact, right? And that's one way. There are also other actors. The judiciary, as is quite clear, even from our conversation so far, Arvind mentioned Navtej Singh Johar and the Nalsa decisions, the judiciary also is an important actor in regulating constitutional change and sometimes, you know, being the actor who pushes society moving towards a certain way. So queer people, given their numbers in the populace, will never have a majoritarian sort of audience or a majoritarian constituency. And it's perhaps fitting that courts, as they have in many other countries, where you're talking about rights of a smaller group of people or a minority of the people, courts have historically been the guardians of such population. So I think if you look at it from that perspective, the fact that we clearly have a living constitution allows for that change. I think the Indian constitution, one of the reasons why it has endured for more than seven decades, it's already a bit of an outlier. Right? So there's been a study done by these scholars in the U.S., where they've calculated that the average life of it, right? And so the Indian constitution has endured beyond that period. We can talk about why that has been the case. And there are many, many factors that one has to look in. But one of them has been the fact that the constitution has a very flexible process for change, which could be a good thing. And when you're talking about queer identity, you can see that as a positive thing. We continue our conversation about the other question that you asked us about what could be drawbacks. One of the things that we are seeing in the current moment of majoritarianism is that the constitution is going, I mean, there's a lot of talk about changing the constitution to pursue particular agenda, right? Now, that could be one of the dangers of a flexible constitution is that you don't know what kind of change will be brought about, right? So when it comes to catering for minority groups like queer populations or, you know, gender cases are not minorities, but women have historically faced obstacles, even though they are half the population, in getting rights that are due to them, right? And they have to rely on these majoritarian institutions. Even their courts have played an important role in sometimes pushing recalcitrant parliaments and governments to bringing about change. So as Arvind mentioned earlier, the Anuj Garb case was an important decision when it comes to gender rights. So I think change is anticipated by the constitution. And at the current moment, we may think that the constitution needs to be changed to accommodate the interests of queer populations. But the question I am worried about is, how do we respond to attempts to change the constitution to reflect a majoritarian agenda, right? such as, as we are seeing in the current political climate? So I suppose I'm raising that as a question for us to consider. And I'm curious how... Akash and Arvind will, will respond to that question. My point was, I think the concerns of the queer community 
can be accommodated within the language of the constitution you don't need any constitutional amendment no i think the question i don't want to raise was about how the flexibility also is a pain because of how it can be manipulated by majoritarian regimes and stuff like that so he had the response himself right i mean the flexibility of the constitution is not the concern from the the point of view of the queer community right here they the only concern is how do you interpret the fundamental rights and who is interpreting the fundamental rights chapter and so far in terms of nalsa navtej there's been a reason i mean of course if we exclude uh, suresh kumar kaushal <laughs> there's a reasonably uh, good sense till now in terms of the way the courts have have interpreted the rights of a, what navtej called an unpopular minority right so yeah Arun is bringing up, as you mentioned, your a bit of a deeper issue, which you know harkens back to two things. One is a kind of classical distinction between constitutional questions and social political questions, and how much interplay you want to have between these two. So you know, each generation's social or political inclinations do they need to be inscribed into the basic law? So this is one thing, but I think. it reflects something more pertinent to the indian context which everyone here i'm sure remembers very well dr bitkas remarks that this isn't really a question about the constitution this is a question about as he said man at that point this is a question about us how we're going to work this constitution whether it's good or bad and so this really seems to be more social political question and even in the cases like arvind had mentioned koshal and we get some very disturbing remarks in navtej we get some really inspirational remarks but these are these judges are just seeped in the same social milieu as the rest of us and if society is leaning towards these progressive ideas you know this is something that we would have to solve at the political level i think rather than the constitutional one the polarization we find today in indian and of course many other countries societies it will inevitably lead to the ruling party taking as much advantage as it can of its power to amend indiscriminately amend which of course we've seen over the last several years a great number of of amendments pushed through and possibly not well thought out in the process but these are more eternal questions rather than you know something i think that our framers could have prevented i can't imagine a constitution set up to be both liberal enough and stable enough to weather the kind of social and political polarization that we find ourselves in today yeah thank you for raising that point and also defining how constitution and social political affect each other but are still pretty different and for sure they could not have ensured a bulletproof plan <laughs> but i think all my <laughs> serious questions are over now but i learned a lot from this session thank you a lot for entertaining <laughs> my questions i would like to end this episode with some recommendations for our listeners what books would you recommend other than of course your own <laughs> for someone who wants to understand the scope of constitution without necessarily a legal background i'm i'm embarrassed to go first because arun and arvind will frown upon my <laughs> on my recommendations but he's going no, but coming from the point of view of someone who's scared of the technicalities of the constitution i would recommend to such a person a book and hopefully arun and arvin won't listen by zia modi it's a small book i think published by penguin maybe 10 years back it's called 10 judgments that changed india and it's written in such a light and readable way that it really is a good entry point for any lay person into the kinds of issues that arun were in fact the, even many of those cases that they were pointing to and a little bit more let's say serious but still accessible is the oxford india short introduction to the indian constitution as a short introduction it's it keeps things quite simple and straightforward i absolute admire of kalpana kanabiran's writing i don't know that she's written a book but she writes very frequently long articles in the hindu and elsewhere 
And these are so well-reasoned and so clearly, the exposition is so clear that I think anyone benefits from reading her articles and work. Can I just join to that? As an introductory book, I'd say both Akash Narun's book, you know, really. Akash's in terms of the introduction to the preamble. It's a great introduction. And it's a great way to begin thinking about these questions. And Arun's book, because what it does is it places the law in a context and you get a sense of a historical background which results in the changing constitutional regimes in India. And the talk which you got from him till now, a lot of that in terms of, you know, what is the constitution as a document, right? What are the various aspects of it? Find a, a reflection in that book. Other institutions of governance, institutions of accountability, fundamentalized chapter, the entire spectrum you get in that book. So I'd say that these two books are great to begin to for any kind of a beginner because both are written for, a, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, both are written for a non-specialist audience. And that's the idea of reaching beyond a smaller minority of legal practitioners as it were and taking the constitution back to the people. So in a sense, both these books do that job, I think, remarkably well. And two more I'd just add, of course, since I've, I was talking about it is, one is if you go to the, the website, of, which is available online, of course, that'd be another place I'd go to. Balgopal is one of the preeminent human rights activists in India. Somebody who, again, there's a very, very beautiful way in which Krishna spoke about uh, trade union activists. He said, what Shankarpur Niyogi did is he breathed life into the constitution for the Adivasis of Central India. So in a similar sense, if you go to palgopal.org and read the range of articles, you get a sense of how human rights activism has breathed life into the constitution. So that's a completely, that perspective of law as struggle, or the constitution is a product of struggle. Not just a struggle of the independent struggle, but a continuing struggle today. Because the constitution takes a new meaning in addition to the struggles of people. And that's what the articles by Balgopal demonstrate remarkably powerful. And of course, the link to that is the my addition to Akash's the junior Kanabran, the senior Kanabran, whose book called uh, called Wages of Impunity. Again, it's a great introduction to the one particular dimension of the Constitution, which is the idea of the how the Constitution can be a check in the powers of an authoritarian state. Again, that's a very very deeply relevant issue today when we're looking at the at the state as being out of control of the constitutional framework. And Kanabaran's entire argument is how does the state come within the control or come within the framework of the constitution? And at the point with both Arun and Akash made, which is that idea that a constitutional imagination should imbue people at all levels of the state apparatus and administration. And the tragedy, of course, is that that is not happening. That is, the bureaucrat thinks within the narrower framework of the existing regulations surrounding him without, without a sense or the broader constitutional framework. So I think that book, Wages of Impunity, is the other book I would I would add to this mix. Now, so I'm broadly in agreement with what Akash and Arvind have said. I should point out, as we've been discussing, what is the audience that some books are written for? And there is a long tradition of books written by constitutional scholars at an academic level. And sometimes they may not be as easily accessible. But as Arvind has also noted, there is, I think perhaps because the constitution is perceived as being in crisis, there are many people, much broad audiences. And I think that the best example, the way people write, not just in the newspapers, in the Hindu in the Express, but also on platforms like Wire, Scroll, India Forum, which you know Arvind recently wrote about the Stan Swami judgments. And that's a place where people from multiple disciplines write for general audiences. But in a way, they also invite all of us to you know, also step up a little bit. So if you want to understand a complex economic proposal, we may not be economists, but we probably need to read some degree of jargon to be able to understand policy measures that are being currently discussed. So I think I would say in response to your point, I think if we look at these platforms, we see many people writing about constitutional issues in ways that are deliberately made accessible to to broader sections. You know, we've talked about a few books. So as mentioned, Zia Modi's book, I think there's a more recent book by Chintan Chandrachud, very much in the same mold of writing about complex decisions in an accessible form. And more people are now getting into that. That's a space which I think will grow. And I think that's a very good thing that you take the constitution away from the ivory tower of the academy and then bring it into greater public focus. 
having said that, I, I would just a couple of books that I've learned a lot from and, and found them also very useful in terms of thinking about questions. So just as Akash has done a lot to you know, explain Ambedkar's role either in the making of the preamble or his ongoing work where he's going to look at his work on the constitution more broadly, I think there is the biographer of Narsingh Rao, B.N. Rao, Arvind Elangovan has a recent book with Oxford University Press, India. It is an academic book, I should say. It's called Norms and Politics. And the subtitle is Sir B.N. Rao's Role in the Making of the Indian Constitution. And it is an academic book, but I think as people get more familiar with these complex issues, they also want to learn more about the personalities behind the Constitution and the way it has played out. Right. So in that spirit, I'd also say Rohit Day's book, People's Constitution, where he focuses on personalities, not the larger personalities who are involved in either drafting the constitution or you know, implementing policy in government, but ordinary people who challenged government decisions and then gave rise to the making of law by courts and then by governments in response to those judicial challenges. So I think Rohit Day's book does a great job of that. But as our discussion makes clear, this is really an area where you know there should be more work and hopefully we are going to see more of that. So I hope this answers part of your question. Yes, thank you so much. I think all those books and resources sound pretty interesting and helpful. I'll also check them out. Thank you so much for having such insightful answers and again for entertaining my questions.